0: justice may plays the card I'm Giancarlo Conoparo I'm Zach Smith and welcome to Scotus 101 where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court what the justices are up to and other things related to our favorite branch of government
1: Welcome back to Scotus 101 GC it's been a big week at the
0: court for oral arguments that it was we heard oral arguments in the challenges to Texas's abortion law SB8 Times two. Times two, and arguments in the big Second Amendment case, New York State Rifle and Pistol versus Bruin. But first, there were a few noteworthy news items this week and orders. Zach, what can you tell us about those?
1: Yeah, there are two items I wanted to follow up on that we mentioned in our last episode. Uh, First up, Elizabeth Preloger was confirmed as the U.S. Solicitor General, and in fact, she jumped right into her duties uh, arguing in one of those uh, SB-8 cases in front of the court. The other item, uh, last week we uh, mentioned an interesting challenge to Maine's uh, vaccine requirement for healthcare workers. It's a case called Dose v. Mills, and as a reminder, this was an emergency request to stop Maine's COVID nineteen vaccine requirement for healthcare workers because it lacked a religious exemption. The request came to Justice Breyer, and he referred it to the court. And since our last episode, the court declined uh, to grant an emergency stay by six to three vote. Justice Gorsuch wrote a dissent from the denial, which Justices Thomas and Alito joined. Interestingly, Justice Barrett, who is joined by Justice Kavanaugh, wrote a short concurrence in the denial. And there are two interesting tidbits uh, I want to talk about with Justice Barrett's concurrence. First, she said that when the court is asked to grant extraordinary relief, like issuing an emergency injunction, it considers, among other things, whether the applicant is likely to succeed on the merits. Now that's not controversial and is pretty well established black letter law. But then Justice Barris went on to say, and I'm quoting here: quote, I understand this factor to encompass not only an assessment of the underlying merits, but also a discretionary judgment about whether the court should grant review in the case. And she went on to say that were the standard otherwise, applicants could use the emergency docket to force the court to give a marriage preview in cases it would ultimately be unlikely to take up. Now, the second interesting tidbit uh, from this concurrence is the fact that Justice Barrett used the term emergency docket uh, to refer to the process by which emergency motions come to the court rather than the shadow docket language uh, that Justice Kagan has recently begun using. So perhaps there's a little bit of a linguistic battle brewing uh, between Justices Barrett and Kagan over the proper way to refer to these emergency motions that come
0: to the court. And turning to oral arguments, first up were the two challenges to Texas's abortion law, one of which was brought by abortion providers and the other by the United States. Now, to start, the big question is, what do these cases have to do with Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood and Dobbs? Uh, the short answer is nothing. Uh the challenge to Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood is going to come in Dobbs, which is going to be argued next month. These cases concern primarily procedural questions that really boil down to who is allowed to sue whom. Now, to set the stage, Texas passed a law called SB-8 that forbids abortions when a heartbeat is detected, which is usually about six weeks into a pregnancy. But the law denies any state official any ability to enforce it. Instead, it gives individuals the right to sue abortion providers and those that aid and abet them in a civil cause of action for which they can receive $10,000. Now, Roe and Casey are still on the books, so this law looks unconstitutional. But remember that courts don't have the power to strike down laws. They can only enjoin officials or individuals from enforcing them. But who would a court enjoin here? No official has enforcement power. Uh, what's more, established rules of justiciability forbid one court from just preemptively banning all the citizens of Texas from bringing suit or from enjoining state courts from hearing these cases. So the abortion providers problem, that that, that case is Whole Women's Health, is that they want the court essentially to strike down the law, but they have to give the court some novel way of figuring out how to reach that result uh, without doing it, which means they need to identify who they can sue Uh, And enjoined from enforcing the law. Now, frankly, when you get down into the weeds of the of the cases and the law that governs this, it's pretty clear that under established rules, there's no official to enjoin. Federal courts can't enjoin state courts, and no case is ripe until a plaintiff has brought an SB8 lawsuit. Still, it looked, and we're in the uncertain realm here of reading tea leaves, so uh, a grain of salt is required, but it looked like a majority of justices, including Kavanaugh and Barrett, were prepared to create some sort of new rule to allow the abortion providers to block the law. What that rule would look like is unknown. There are a number of ways the court could go in joining state court clerks, creating sort of the legal fiction that private plaintiffs are operating as de facto deputized attorney generals. But whatever happens, uh, if the court creates some rule to allow abortion providers to sue, two things are certain. Number one, the rule would not be limited to abortion cases, no matter how hard the court tries. We know how that goes. And two, it will fundamentally change and expand the reach of the federal courts. I am reminded uh, at the end of oral arguments by Justice O'Connor's dissent in Thornburg v. American College which was 1986, where she said, and I quote, no legal doctrine is safe from ad hoc nullification by this court when an occasion for its application arises in a case involving state regulation of abortion.
1: (laughs) That seems to be very true, GC.
0: Yeah. Now, turning to the United States case, uh, the federal government also sued Texas, you'll recall, and it runs into the same problem of who to sue and who to enjoin, but it also runs into a preliminary question what is the federal government's interest in the suit? You've got to have one for there to be a justiciable case or controversy. So the government says that its interest is in defending the supremacy of the Constitution against state intrusions. There is one old case called in re Debs that can be read to permit this uh, unique approach, but it's a stretch. It's never been done before, and there's not a clear limiting principle Uh, Most court watchers, therefore, sort of predict some sort of victory for the abortion providers, but a defeat for the federal government. Now, the million-dollar question, of course, is do these cases have any bearing or shed any light on what the court is going to do in Dobbs? Probably not. My view is that the procedural issues here can and should be separated from the underlying merits of Roe and Casey. You know, GC,
1: listening to the oral arguments in both of these cases, I was struck uh, by how much these oral arguments sounded essentially like a crash course in a federal courts class in law school and a crash course in a remedies class (laughs) uh, in law school. Uh, especially when Justice Kavanaugh started asking, you know, what extent uh, ex parte young, uh, which, you know, is a decision that allows state officials uh, to be sued in certain instances, uh, should be extended, how it should be applied. And it was uh, certainly giving me flashbacks to uh, to some of my darker <laughs> law school days. <laughs> now, next up, we have New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Brune. This is the major Second Amendment case that the court— uh, heard this term, and the court's being asked to decide whether New York State's denial of the petitioner's applications for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violates the Second Amendment. Essentially, New York's law requires anyone who wants to carry a concealed handgun outside of his or her home to demonstrate that they have, quote, proper cause to do so. And the way that the state has defined this proper cause, an applicant has to show a special need to defend him or herself Over and above just a general desire for self defense. Now, arguing for the petitioners was Paul Clement, and he pointed out that carrying a gun outside of the home is a right enjoyed by people in 43 other states. And more importantly, that the entire point of a constitutional right, like the Second Amendment, is that you don't have to ask government officials for permission to exercise it. Now, Like you said earlier, GC, I'm hesitant to read the tea leaves from any argument, Uh, but if I had to read the tea leaves from this argument, uh, it seems like a majority of the justices are inclined to strike down New York's current iteration of its concealed carry law, but leave for another day the extent to which governments can regulate the carrying of firearms in sensitive places like government buildings, churches, and large gatherings, as well as some other ancillary issues uh, that cropped up during the argument.
0: Last up and under the radar, the court heard oral arguments in Houston Community College System versus Wilson, which will decide whether the First Amendment limits a public school board's ability to censure one of its own members when he criticized it.
1: Up next is our interview with an old friend of the show, Chief Judge Bill Pryor. But before we get to Judge Pryor's interview, I wanted to play a clip uh, where Chief Justice John Roberts is congratulating Justice Clarence Thomas for his official 30th anniversary of being on the court. Today's orders of the court have been duly entered and certified and filed with the clerk. Before we begin,
2: I would like to note that today marks the 30th anniversary of the investiture of our colleague Justice Thomas as a member of the court. Exactly 30 years ago, he stood right behind here, uh, behind the bench, and repeated the judicial oath
1: administered by Chief Justice Rehnquist. On behalf of the court, I would like to extend to Justice Thomas our heartfelt congratulations on what is, for all of us, a very happy anniversary. We're pleased to be joined today by Chief Judge Bill Pryor. Judge Pryor is a previous guest and a friend of the show, and he recently delivered the Heritage Foundation's annual Joseph Story Lecture, which he entitled Politics and the Rule of Law. Uh, So we wanted to have him back on the show today to talk about his lecture. Judge Pryor, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Thank you. We're very glad to have you back again. And to start things off, if you could uh, just tell us – kind of give us the 40,000-foot view of your lecture and tell us why you decided to talk on uh, politics and the rule of law this year.
2: Sure. Uh, I thought that this year was uh, an appropriate time to talk about threats to the rule of law that are coming from both ends of the political spectrum, both uh, from the left and from the right. Uh, at least that's the way I perceive it um, from, from my perspective in helping administer the rule of law. Sure, um, I, I've seen proposals on each end of the po- political spectrum that look to the courts as performing only based on substantive a- outcomes, sure. uh, measuring performance based so, solely on substantive outcomes without regard to the process and to our understanding of present law and what the law would require in in terms of a particular outcome. And so you see it on the left in calls for court packing to produce sure. uh, a jurisprudence of liberal political results. And then on the right, there's a newfound call for an alternative – Right. To what so many in the conservative movement ha- have uh, espoused in, in terms of um, the proper constitutional interpretation being bound by the original meaning of the of the Constitution, and the 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 new alternative uh, uh, is either an appeal to common good constitutionalism or common good originalism as distinct from what has been our understanding of being bound by the original public meaning of the Constitution.
1: Right now, in your speech, you called this new common good originalism or common good constitutionalism. Uh, you dubbed it living common goodism <laughs> yeah, living common goodism right it, so if you could unpack a little bit what you understand this approach to be, and why do you call it a living common goodism well
2: there's there's still some uncertainty about what it exactly means other than a call for a jurisprudence of more conservative in terms of political spectrum, conservatism, sure. uh, re- political results. Uh, and, and, and as res- it is a – at least as I understand what the pitch has been, the pitch is put in terms of, well, this will help us achieve better and better meaning more conservative right. uh, results. Uh, and, and I called it – I dubbed it – Living common goodism for reason. So some some who have been critical of what what uh, has been practiced as originalism by mm-hmm. Justice Scalia and Thomas and others have and those who have criticized this and said that it's that it um, it's not good enough. Uh, they, they described it as positivist. They and lacking in um, in a an appreciation for what should be the substantive ends of the common good. Right. Um, I, I view that as very much akin to living constitutionalism. Sure. Uh, as 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 looking at the here and now as to what the common good is, and right. living constitutionalism in in a real way does that right. from a liberal, liberal political perspective, perhaps and this seems to me to just be the other side of the coin at least in so far as this has been described with any kind of uh, specificity on the one hand there there has been a harvard law professor who's really an expert in what i call the law of the bureaucracy administrative sure. law uh who uh who says we ought to be a um developing or fashioning what he calls a return to common good constitutionalism, not an appeal to originalism in any respect. Mm-hmm. And then there are others who have said, no, 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 what we need is a better originalism, a new version of originalism. And, but but all seem to be united by the idea that um, originalism as currently understood and is currently practiced isn't good enough. And the reason— Mm-hmm. It is not good enough, is because it's not producing the conservative political outcomes we want. It's not it's not promoting the common good as we see it, uh, as it should.
1: Sure. Well, if it's okay, I want to dive in on a couple of specific criticisms to kind of the approach, the originalist approach you outlined in your speech. Uh, one of them, and this is a quote. Uh, a critic of originalism said it's "quote a denuded jurisprudence that solely relies on proceduralist bromides." Yeah. How'd you respond to that, Judge Pryor? Well, it's nonsense. <laughs> uh, so um, we
2: have, in many respects, a procedural or, and I take that that criticism to be really a criticism of of originalism and its focus on structure. So we sure. we have a structural constitution. Justice Scalia used to say, "Structure is everything." Right, and and the reason he said that was because um, he he recognized as the framing generation, the founding generation, recognized that um, bills of rights and and guarantees of liberty, uh, guarantees of certain kinds of rights. <laughs> Are just parchment guarantees right. without uh, the structural protections of separated powers, right. without the structural protections of an independent uh, judiciary, uh, with some judicial power reserved in, in in a popular sovereignty sense in the people through juries, sure. uh, th- and and um, and even with the division of um, of authority between. Uh, the federal government and the states what Madison called the the double security uh for for individual sure. liberty uh and so uh they're wrong uh in in criticizing that that sure. that's what makes um the constitution the genius document that it is that right. structural right. or procedural um feature and 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 frankly the founding generation in creating a structural constitution, they were building on just generations and generations, really literally thousands of years of um, of political theory, uh, right. starting with Aristotle leading through Aquinas and, and the recognition that power corrupts, mm-hmm. uh, that the best form of government uh, – Aristotle might have said – or Aquinas even would have said um, – would have been a king. Mm-hmm. If, the, if, you, if it was a good king, mm-hmm. that would be a great form of government. But the problem is right. a bad king is the worst form of right. government. <laughs> right. and, and, and for that reason, you know, political theorists and moral thinkers about political theory uh, recognize that um, dividing power was part of the secret – of producing a better constitution and a better government. And that's that's what our founding generation built upon is that, that, that conception.
1: Sure. And I think Justice Scalia even talked about occasionally uh, that the Soviet constitution on paper mm-hmm. actually had more rights than our constitution. Uh, but no one would think that those rights are actually guaranteed better in the Soviet Union than they were in right. the United States. They had
2: a beautiful uh, – at least – wording of their right. Bill of Rights, um, promised freedom of speech and press and all, right. all sorts of, uh, of rights that meant nothing. They were, in the framing generation's terminology, parchment guarantees because they did not have a, a rightly ordered or a rightly structured uh, government. Uh, they didn't have what these critics of originalism are calling,
1: I guess, procedural right. bromides. <laughs> right. Uh, Let me ask you this, Judge Pryor. Uh, Do you think the founders were originalist even if they wouldn't necessarily describe themselves in that that way, in those terms? They they
2: undoubtedly were. We know they were. Uh, We know what they said about um, the reason we have a written constitution and how uh, recourse to it required um, understanding its original and authentic meaning. Madison sure. said that. Um you know all all that all the founding generation uh said that. John Marshall, that was certainly his view. Uh it was even it was even um Thomas Jefferson's view, who of course, you know, really did not play a role in right. in, in the writing of the Constitution. Um it was it was Story's view, it was absolutely the founding generation's um view about how to interpret the Constitution. Even the Marbury decision refers to the Framers' understanding of the Constitution being a rule for courts as well as of the legislature. Right. Um, Marbury Mar- Marbury says it, it's apparent that that was the Framers' intent. Right. Uh, it, it explicitly, John Marshall explicitly uses that kind of understanding and he's deriving purpose or intent from the words of the document he's saying you know look there's a prohibition of bills of attainder there's a requirement of two witnesses um, for a prosecution for treason uh, and he's and he's saying the only way to understand this is uh, as a rule for courts right, uh, and, right. and so um, uh, there there's no there's really no doubt that the founding generation thought that the you know the determinative factor in, in
1: constitutional interpretation was the, its original meaning right right now one of the things that 's come up in this debate over the proper way to interpret the constitution is the role of natural law in uh, constitutional interpretation uh, what's your views on that, Judge Pryor?
2: well the, the the founding generation very much believed in natural law and, they, and natural rights those aren't the same thing uh but mm-hmm. but they um they they wanted a constitution that would protect uh certain natural rights uh sure. they also wanted one that comported with principles of natural justice uh, you know so as i was talking about the structural or procedural uh, features of the Constitution, they wanted a justly ordered uh, government, and and a lot of the structural features are built on, you know, more abstract, abstract principles of natural justice. Uh, sure. But th- but then there are provisions of the Constitution that per- expressly protect what they understood to be natural rights. So the right to bear arms, the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, uh, for example, uh, the. F- founding generation understood to be the rights of human nature sure and 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 to understand the original meaning of those expressed protections I th- we have to understand what they meant by those natural rights so for example the freedom of speech would not extend to the freedom to harm another's reputation that is not sure. a natural right so uh, there's not a free speech protection for defamation, sure. nor would there be a free speech guarantee uh, for that would protect uh, fraudulent speech, uh, sure. or, you know, so obscenity, uh, for example. Uh, and understanding their view of natural law, understanding uh, their view of um, particularly natural rights— Mm -hmm. is something that we would have to resort to to understand the express protections of natural rights and the Constitution itself. But it's not a crutch that we
1: use to go beyond what the text provides. Now, in your speech, you talked about there were some cases, there's a lot of confusion in the application of natural law uh, in constitutional adjudication. And you gave some examples where you thought uh, this confusion led to maybe some... uh, bad decisions uh, of the Supreme Court and mm-hmm. some cases where it led to appropriate decisions. Could you talk a little bit about maybe what some of those uh, bad decisions were and what some of those appropriate decisions were?
2: Well, the most infamous example, of course, would be Dred Scott. I mean, Justice taney's opinion is is um, an exercise in, in uh, pretending that— a uh, that a slave, a former slave, is a naturally inferior being, and therefore cannot sure. enjoy the same rights as any other um, person. Um, that that that's not an appeal to the text of the Constitution. That's a right. misuse of the due process clause, and it's a misuse um, of um, in constitutional interpretation. Uh, but but. That, you know it's an old phenomenon, you know Justice Black criticized the Gris- Griswold decision, which he viewed uh, which you know rec- recognized the constitutional right of a married couple to um access to artificial contraception sure. he said this is grounded in a natural law due process philosophy derived from Lochner versus New york, which um which ruled that uh you know the state of new york right. could not regulate the the number of hours that bakers uh, could work as you know, you know, right. well, they, the legislature apparently viewed as a as a hazardous um, sure. occupation it's a widely criticized decision <laughs> widely um, criticized today. decision uh and, and uh you know I, I think some of the um I, I don't think there would be many proponents of what i call living common goodism who would view um a right to artificial contraception as a natural right <laughs> right uh, but but if but if um if judges are free to um not be bound by the text of the constitution but to um to enforce some kind of unwritten uh natural rights then confusion about them uh something that the founding generation certainly understood could happen on an individual basis, uh, will produce bad decision-making. Right.
1: Now, I mentioned uh, you gave your speech, the Joseph Story Lecture, and there's been some response to it. We've talked a little bit about some of the criticism. Uh, One of the proponents of this living common goodism uh, that – Uh, you mentioned earlier, Professor Adrian Vermeule, he actually responded uh, to your speech after we published it at Heritage. And he said that that your approach is, and I'm quoting here, masochistic positivism, the worse the law you enforce, the more, quote, principled you are. Uh, Again, how would you respond to that, Judge Pryor? And do you have any additional thoughts uh, you'd like to offer in response? Well,
2: When every judge begins their performance of their duty, they have to do the same thing. Entering on duty requires first, before we have the authority to perform judicial duty, we have to swear an oath. Mm -hmm. We swear an oath to the Constitution and laws of the United States. We swear an oath... To the positive law, um, to apply the positive law faithfully and impartially—that's the oath. Sure, that's the moral obligation, the moral duty of every judge.
1: Sure.
2: Uh, so, I, I'm not—I would—I don't consider myself a positivist, but I do think—I I think clearly because of the oath—I have a moral obligation to follow the positive law. Sure, and
1: just so our listeners are clear, what do you what do you mean when you're talking about the positive law?
2: The enacted law, the law that is identified in the text of the oath itself, right. um, the Constitution, um, and the laws of the United States, um, and and um, you know, we can have a debate about what is that law, right. but whatever it is, that's what I swore an oath to. To uh, apply faithfully and impartially excellent
1: now you also told a story uh, that Justice Scalia used to to tell about uh, originalism and when sometimes uh, uh, either proponents or opponents would criticize originalism uh, about two hunters uh, in the in the woods. Would you mind sharing that story with us yes yeah, so uh, the the story he used to tell the joke he used to tell
2: was that two tr- two hunters uh, on leaving their tent in the woods are suddenly confronted by a grizzly bear and start to run. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the bear is running after them. And the slower-running hunter says to the faster one, um, it's no use. We'll never outrun this bear. And the faster one responds, I don't have to outrun despair. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> and um, and Justice Scalia's rhetorical point was that um, he does he doesn't have to prove he never had to prove he felt that originalism was perfect or without defects. It's just better than any alternative. Sure. Uh, and he gave you know he-, he made that pitch in a really famous lexer- lecture. In a more extended fashion, uh, called originalism, the lesser evil, and um, and that's that, that was his point. He says, you know, if we want judges to be bound um, by the law and not to be imposing their own view on the law, but to to actually be bound and restrained by uh, the law, the problem with the uh, alternatives to originalism is that they play precisely to the weakness that the the judge will misunderstand his own views as being actually the law mm-hmm. uh, and, and not be able to distinguish
1: between the two. Excellent. I did want to quickly ask you, Judge Pryor, since you were here last, you've become the chief judge of the 11th Circuit. So I was going to ask, how has uh, your day-to-day activities changed and uh, what do you enjoy or not enjoy <laughs> about being the chief judge?
2: Uh, I... It, so I've been a judge now for 17 years and uh, have been the chief for a little over, I guess, a, about a year and a half. And um, after so many years of just being a regular active judge, sure. having uh, the leadership and administrative responsibilities of chief uh, is really a nice change of pace. Um, I still have, you know, the ordinary judicial responsibilities, sure. although I'm freed from – from some of the more routine matters like some motions and sure things of that kind um, but um but leading the court, appointing committees, um, ensuring that uh, the court is being run well um is is fun um and uh, and exactly. and if, if you've done it long enough and you've watched the court operate um for long enough you you're invariably going to see things that you think could be done better sure. when you get the opportunity uh, sure. to change uh, and uh you know even little things like um our, so our court website you know you can you can access our opinions when we when we issue opinions we post them on our public website immediately right. i knew that our website uh, opinions page did not have near the um Searching capabilities that right. that other circuits had, for sure. example, uh, and so you know, I immediately tasked the IT department with bringing ours up to date and and Excellent. and even making it better. <laughs> I wanted to make it better than the others, right? Excellent. Uh, yeah, I had long um, just gritted my teeth and and <laughs> and, and, and and been bearing uh, the uh, the opinion format where we had these. Small Margins and Times New ra- Roman typeface. <laughs> and we just had uh, among the ugliest opinions of any circuit in the country. Okay, And so, uh, you know, appointed a committee. Uh, to tackle that, and we we now have a new opinion format, which much better caption with wider margins, a new Excellent. typeface. Uh, we're using uh, Dante, uh, and it, everyone now has to use italics in their case names. You know, <laughs> all these nerdy little things that I care about. Um, and and uh, but you know, the great thing is got, we've gotten terrific feedback from members of the bar, and great. and. Um, Law professors and members of the public, and uh, and that's you know that's gratifying. Uh, you want Excellent. you want your your product to be read and appreciated,
1: and I, sure. I think this helps. Excellent. Well, Judge Pryor, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and we'd love to have you on again in the future. My pleasure. I'd love to do it again. Excellent. Thanks so much, Gc. Are you ready for a little solicitor general themed trivia this week? Interesting. I like it. Well, I figured since we have a new SG, let's uh, dig in
0: and uh, see what you know.
1: All right. First up, I have a softball for you. What is the Solicitor General's
0: nickname? Ah, often called the Tenth Justice.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Because the Solicitor General appears in the front of the court so frequently, because the justices often call for the views of the Solicitor General in difficult cases, uh, the SG is commonly referred to as the 10th Justice. Now, we haven't always had a Solicitor General. So my next question is, when was the office of the Solicitor General
0: established? Oof. I... I'm sure that it's later than I think, but I I don't know, so I won't guess. Oh, come on, GC. Give us a guess. Um, Any guess. Okay, let me think. Uh, mid-1800s.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. That's wow. pretty good. Uh, it was 1870. Uh, and in fact, the office of the Solicitor General was established at the same time the Department of Justice uh, was established as well. Uh, so mid-1800s, that was, uh, that was a pretty good guess. All right, good. Now, do you have any idea who our first SG was? You know, uh, I should know this, but I'm afraid I don't. Well, that's okay. It's uh, Benjamin Bristow. And so if you've ever wondered why there are Bristow fellows Ah. in today's SG's office— Uh, That fellowship is named in honor of our first SG, Benjamin Bristow, uh, who is himself a very interesting character. He went on to serve as Secretary of Treasury uh, in the Grant administration. He ultimately sought uh, the presidential nomination in the late 1870s, but he didn't get it. And so after that, he went into private practice in New York City, uh, where he continued to argue before the Supreme Court uh, until his death. Hmm. Uh, So very interesting uh, gentleman. Now, GC, here, I I thought this was a very interesting question. Which future president uh, previously served uh, as Solicitor General before he became president?
0: Well, speaking of interesting gentlemen, this is the man who could do everything, William Howard Taft.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Uh, As I'm sure you know, among other things, he was a judge on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal, served in several diplomatic posts, and uh, after he became president, uh, he, in fact, served as a chief justice on the Supreme Court. All right, GC, final question for today. How many solicitors general later became justices on the Supreme Court?
0: Ooh, okay. This is one of those ones where you ask me for the number, and I'm just going to give you a few names because I don't know the exact number. So let me think through it. Definitely. So William Howard Taft, obviously. Right, right. Uh, Elena Kagan. That's two. Um, Thurgood Marshall. That's three. That's right. Um, I'm out. I'm out. That's pretty good, GC.
1: There were five. So you got three. Okay. Uh, the other remaining two were Stanley Reed and Robert Jackson. And if you expand the scope slightly uh, to include principal deputy solicitor generals, uh, you would also get Chief Justice John Roberts, who served in mm-hmm. that capacity under Kenneth Starr in the early 90s. Interesting. Uh, so well done. Now, I will ask you one more question, GC. I lied. That wasn't my final question. (laughs) Okay. I've been following an interesting debate on Twitter the past uh, few days about whether or not it's appropriate uh, to refer to the Solicitor General as General. So it would be General Kagan or General Preliger. What's your take on that?
0: Well, um, I have very strong feelings on this. General in the sense of Solicitor General and Attorney General is an adjective, Uh, So you don't call them general, but I'm (laughs) on the losing side of that debate, I think.
1: Well, it, It is a very contentious debate on Twitter, uh, but you certainly have some other folks uh, who also adhere to your view. (laughs) Uh, So I will say, uh, Professor Marin Levy uh, and the Supreme Court Historical Society have a lot of interesting uh, judicial and Supreme Court-related fun facts on Twitter. Uh, So if you're looking to learn more information about the Solicitor General's Office or just the court in general, uh, those would be great Twitter feeds uh, to follow. (music) you see that's all we have for today uh, so i want to say thank you to everyone for listening to scotus 101 please be sure to subscribe on spotify apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen and as always we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating
0: you can follow us on twitter and instagram at scotus 101 and email us at scotus 101 at heritage.org with your questions comments or ideas for future shows
2: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Giney, and
0: John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.